word, isn't it? Very important word. And really it's at the core and the center of, of spiritual fellowship. It's a word that shows up a lot in the book of 1 John. And we need to experience love. We all want to experience love. How is that even possible? Well, it starts with understanding three things. To experience love, we need to understand at least three things. And, and we're just kind of getting a little bit of a big picture from a couple chapters here in 1 John. So here's, here's the points we're going to look at primarily today. Number one, Jesus commands love for one another. He commands us to love one another. Number two, we're going to look at Jesus' death and how that reveals God's love for us. And then three, if we love as Jesus commanded, that same love will then assure us of salvation. That's what the Bible says. So if you want to know if you're a Christian, there are several tests that we find in this book that can assure us of salvation. So let's have a look what the Scripture says. Look at 1 John chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 11. 1 John 3, verse 11. We're going to look at two different passages, one in chapter 3 and then one in chapter 4. And it's amazing how these two come together and, and really say basically the same sort of things. But let's start here in chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he, that's Jesus, Lay down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we shall we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Now skip over to chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, 
but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Basically three quick points we want to look at today. Number one is that Jesus commands his disciples to love one another. It's a command. We saw it at the beginning of that passage there in three, and we saw it again here in chapter four. Love one another is is clearly the main theme of this particular section of Scripture. The basic ethical message of Christianity is stated clearly there for you in chapter 3, verse 11. I'll remind you what it says. Chapter 3, verse 11 says, For this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And, uh, by the way, you see it again at the end, chapter 4, verse 21. It says, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So think of it as bookends, if you will, around this passage here. So you see it at the beginning as well as at the end. So you might ask, well, who are the one another? Because it says love one another. Who's the one another? Well, the answer is Christians, believers in Jesus Christ. And you'll notice as John talks, he uses a lot of references. and He says, we, us. Friends, little children, beloved. Who is he talking about there? Well, believe it or not, every single one of those references is all a reference to Christians. So when John's saying, hey, we, us, friends, little children, beloved, he's he's saying, hey, you Christians love one another. How often should Christians love one another? Well, this is, this is one of those situations, a command that is to continue on constantly throughout your life. So love is to be a continuous habit, an attitude, and an action of our lives. And when it comes to this matter of love, it's interesting, John contrasts love in four possible levels, if you will. There's, and I put quotation marks around levels of relationships here, because really uh, some of these are not a relationship at all. They're bad examples, and that's why John uses them. But let's just think of the various levels of relationship of which a person can live in that John mentions here. The first one he mentions is murder. 
murder. You say, well, that's not a very good relationship. (laughs) You're right, it's not, and that's why John mentions it. And you can see that in verses 11 and 12. Chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. John's giving us a negative example to avoid here, particularly there in verse 12. He says, do not be like Cain. Now, some of you may not know who Cain is. You need to read Genesis chapter 4, and you can find out about Cain. Here, put a little picture on the screen here for you, Cain and Abel. And you say, well, what happened to these guys? Well, Cain and Abel were some of Adam and Eve's children. And what you have in Genesis 4 is the first murder in the Bible. What Cain did is he slew his brother because the Bible says that God honored Abel's faith and his sacrifice more than he did Cain's sacrifice and faith. Abel's mentioned in the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Clearly he had faith in God. And I want you to see how verse 12 describes Cain. Look at verse 12 in your Bibles. Put your eyeballs on the page there because Cain is described as someone who belonged to the evil one. That's referring to Satan. He was Satan-possessed, if you will. Uh, Somebody said the most common variety of demonic possession is lovelessness. Particularly the absence of love for your fellow Christian and for your fellow humanity. We were meant to be people who experience and give love. Isn't it a blessing that a part of that fruit of the Spirit is love? It's a supernatural work in us that God does. We were meant to to be people who experience love and give love to other people. Even the enemies are enemies. We are made in God's image, and that's, that's how this is possible. And so the absence of love, then, is really a hollowing out of ourselves. It's the emptying of ourselves when there is no love. So Cain is a bad example, a negative example. He's an example of a life of hatred. And it's important to note, by the way, that Cain and Abel had the same parents. Now stay with me for a moment. Their parents were Adam and Eve. They both brought sacrifices to God. So notice the comparison between these guys. Cain is not presented as an atheist. Cain is presented in the scriptures as a worshiper. And at this point, it's it's important to note that children of the devil masquerade as believers. Yes, children of the devil masquerade, put mask on, and can appear to be worshipers of God. Sometimes they attend religious gatherings just as Cain did. They may even bring offerings. That's what Cain is doing. He's giving the the produce of his garden. But did those actions save him? Did he have the right motives? Did he have faith in God? Apparently not. Those actions in themselves are not valid proof that someone is actually born of God. It doesn't prove that you are a child of God, that you are actually a Christian. The real test is your love for other Christians. And this is where Cain failed. And that's why the Holy Spirit's using Cain as an example here. He did not love his brother. So the first level of a relationship that that John's mentioning here is murder, which is not a good one. Okay, but you'll notice there's a progression to to the last one, number four, which is the one that we need to practice. But look at number two here. It's hatred. 
John mentions hatred in chapter 3, verses 11 through 15, or 13 through 15. And some of you might be sitting here thinking, okay, what does this have to do with me? Right? Some of you might be thinking, hey, I've never murdered anybody, so this is not applicable to me. And to that statement, this is what God says. God says hatred is the same as committing the act of murder. So there's, there's a lot of people who are guilty of murder in God's eyes. Probably, it wouldn't surprise me if everyone in the world is guilty of murder in God's eyes. The only difference between murder and hatred is the outward act where you actually take someone's life. That's the only difference. Jesus said they're one and the same in the Sermon on the Mount. And so what, what is the same, though, is the inward intent. And so often, for most people, the only thing stopping them from actually committing the act of murder is the law. They don't want to go to jail. They don't want the, the, the consequences of their sin. God says, be careful of hatred. A third level of relationship that John mentions here is indifference. He mentions indifference in chapter 3, verse 16. This is, this is one we're going to park on for a while because many of us, if not all of us, are guilty of indifference. Notice what John says in, in, in verse 16 there. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So closing your heart to some other person is indifference. And of course, Christ is given as the the primary example of what true Christian love looks like. And you say, how is that? How is that? Well, Jesus gave his life for us, didn't he? Therefore, Christian love is going to involve sacrifice. It's going to involve service. By the way, Christ did not simply talk about his love, did he? Christ actually died to prove his love. Jesus, by the way, was not killed as a martyr. The Bible says that Jesus willingly laid down his life for you. But God does not ask us to lay down our lives. Most of us are are never going to be in a position where we actually give our life in exchange for another Christian, are we? Probably not going to happen, I hope. But he simply asks us to help a brother in need. And it's interesting how John wisely turns from talking about the plural brethren in verse 16 And then into verse 17, he starts talking singular brother, sister. By the way, brother there is, you realize it's not your blood brother. Brother there is your Christian brother, your Christian sister. That's what John's talking about. Are you willing to lay down your life in service and in sacrifice for another Christian? That's what God is commanding us to do. It's easy for us to talk about loving the brethren, right? We can get all, you know, uh, we, we can talk about it, but do we actually do it? Yeah, we talk about the plural, but do you actually invest your time, your money, your effort, your blood, sweat, and tears into one person? Just one person. We neglect to help believe, uh, a believer, but we can talk about loving the brethren. 
So my Christian friends, please understand, Christian love is something that's personal and it's active. It's something that you must do. And notice it is, it is an action. It involves action on your part. By the way, you say, well, what does uh, indifference look like? There's a good illustration in the Bible. You've probably heard of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Parable of the Good Samaritan is a classic example of indifference. There's two individuals in the story that Jesus mentions who did not love their brother. In fact, they're both religious men, both of them. The first one, Jesus says, walked right by this half-dead man who had been robbed, beaten, and left half-dead. They just left him. The robbers left him. Here comes a religious man, a priest of Israel, walks by. You can see him in the picture there, as if that wasn't bad enough. Then there comes a Levite, another religious man of Israel. He walks by. Both of those men should have stopped and done something, but they did not because they were indifferent. Their heart was closed to this man. It's a sad, sad story, isn't it? They were indifferent. Many of us, that's where we live we're very self-centered. We're proud. We, we don't want to get involved in other people's messes, other people's lives. It's costly, isn't it? It is. But that's what God calls us to do. Just as the third man came along, Jesus said, here's a Samaritan. The last person in the world that you would have expected to help was a Samaritan. But he did. He jumps in. He helps. And that's the last example. A level of relationship we need to look at is the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, which the last level of Christian relationship is, is Christian compassion. True Christian love means loving in deed and in truth. Oh, you might be a truth person, but are you a deed person? Are you an action person? Because if you look at the scriptures here, in verse 18 it says, little children, that's you. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The Bible says you're to love in deed and in truth. Actions are included here. By the way, notice the opposite of deed is word, and the opposite of truth is talk. You ever heard the phrase, talk is cheap? <laughs> yeah, talk's very cheap sometimes. By the way, there's, a, there's an example of Someone loving in word only in the book of James. Here's what love in word looks like. Look, James chapter 2, verse 15 says this. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Spiritual maturity acts upon someone who is in need. By the way, if you can't afford it, if, if you yourself are in the same situation, of course God doesn't expect you to help the person. But if you have the ability, and all you do is just say, be warmed and filled, God bless you, that is not sufficient, is it? That's only, that's only the word part. God expects us to act in deed. And so to love in word just simply means you, you're talking about the need, but loving indeed it means you're doing something to meet that need. 
That's what the good Samaritan did, didn't he? He helped bandage that man up, take care of his wounds, put him on his own donkey, takes him to, to a place where he could get looked after. He pays for his food and his drink and so the man could be healed. He could go back home and work again. Love involves more than words. It calls for sacrificial deeds. To love and talk is the opposite of to love and truth. It, it means to love insincerely. Talk is cheap. But to love in truth means to love a person genuinely from the heart. It's not just talking about it, but it's also doing something about it. And that's what the Bible's talking about here. By the way, you notice people are attracted by genuine love. We don't get enough of those stories in the news, but people love those kind of stories, don't they? Genuine love, genuine self-sacrifice, where someone might even put their life on the line. I saw one last week in the news where... where, where uh, it was an American soldier when he wasn't even on duty. He ends up saving people's lives. As, as a car was blowing up around him, he's pulling people out of the car to save their life. He put his life on the line, literally. That's a great example of loving indeed. And one reason why sinners were attracted to Jesus Christ is because Jesus didn't talk the talk. He walked it as well. He, he served people indeed. And people were attracted to him. Did it cost him Yes, it cost Jesus a lot, didn't it? Cost him his life. Cost Jesus his life. But, you know, there's wonderful benefits that come as a result of giving your life to other people. That's not why you should do it, by the way. But there's some wonderful blessings that John mentions that come to believers who are practicing Christian love. Let me just highlight for you what John says. Look at verses 19 and 20, because the first blessing is assurance. You gain assurance. Look at verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. Verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So a believer's relationship with other people, you know what? That's going to affect you. That's going to affect your relationship with God. The Bible says a man who's not right with his brother should go and deal with your brother or sister in Christ before you come and attempt to worship God. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5. That's how serious of a matter this is. You can't worship God until you deal with whatever is between you and your brother and sister. So a Christian who practices love is growing in his understanding of God's truth. Someone who is enjoying a heart filled with confidence before God. So assurance is a blessing, a byproduct of loving other Christians. Number two, there's a second benefit or blessing, answered prayer. You have your prayers answered. Look at verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. You want your prayers answered? Then love one another. Love for other Christians produces confidence toward God, and then confidence toward God will actually give you boldness and asking and praying to God. And by the way, it doesn't mean that you somehow earn answers to your prayers. You, you don't get like uh, flyby points with God. You understand that, right? You don't get bonus points by loving other Christians. It doesn't work that way. But this is a command, and the Bible says, if you're regarding iniquity in your heart, the Lord will not hear you. 
What it does mean is your, your love for the brethren is proving that you're, you are living the will of God. And then God can answer your prayers. So, we have the first blessing of assurance. We have the blessing of answered prayer. And number three, the last one is abiding. There's abiding in verses 23 and 24. Abiding in Christ is a key concept in several places in the Bible, but it certainly is, is here. Uh, another passage in John 15, the illustration of abiding is, is the vine and the branch. Jesus is the vine, we are a branch. So he compares his followers there to branches on a vine. And, and so as long as that branch is drawing its strength and its nutrients from the vine, then it can produce fruit. However, if a branch is somehow separated from the vine, what happens to the branch? Can it produce fruit? No way. It withers. It dies. By the way, Jesus wasn't talking about salvation there. That's not the point of the passage in John 15. But what, we, what he was talking about was your sanctification, your fruit-bearing. And so the instant a sinner trusts Christ, he enters into union with Christ. But this is something you have to understand. It's a moment-by-moment relationship. You must continually stay stuck, connected to Jesus Christ in, in perfect communion. So... Abiding is something that depends on your obedience to the Word of God. You can disconnect yourself by your disobedience, by not loving one another, for example. So it's a glorious truth we see in the Scriptures that Jesus commands us to love one another. But some of us are going to struggle with that. It may not come natural to you. So what does that look like? Well, God's given you the greatest example. So let's have a look at this, because we see that Jesus' death reveals God's love to us. Jesus' death reveals God's love. We don't know what love is simply by thinking of how we feel about some people who are like us. Sometimes we might project that, that feeling onto others that are like us, and, and somehow we might think, hey, I, I love other people. You know what? That might actually be self-love. That may not be real love, agape love that the Bible's talking about. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, even sinners and tax collectors can love other people like themselves. Jesus says that's not love when you just love someone like yourself. There's nothing supernatural about that kind of a love. So John definitely here has a supernatural kind of a love in mind. This is, this is a fruit of the Spirit, if you will. The Holy Spirit working in us. And he tells us of a love that is both of God as well as from God. And that's what John's talking about here. Look at chapter 4, like verse 8, for example, as well as verse 16. It says, God is love. So love is something that is at the core of God's being. It's, it's a part of his whole makeup. So if you want to think of it as part of his foundation, God is love. In fact, love comes from God according to chapter 4, verse 7. So love's the very fountain. It's a source. It's a spring which genuine love flows from. The only way you and I can even practice this kind of love is because God is love. And we're made in his image. Let me just give you two points as we think about Jesus' death revealing God's love to us. 
Number one is that God reveals His love in His Son, Jesus Christ. God reveals His love, particularly in the sacrifice of His Son. That's what John specifically talks about here. If you look at, uh, again, chapter 3, verse 16, it's a great example. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Look at chapter 4, verse 9. Chapter 4, verse 9 says the same sort of thing. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's a glorious truth. If we want to know what love is, don't look at people. (laughs) You look at Jesus. Look at God. We look at Jesus who is on the cross, particularly when he was, he was broken, he was battered, he was beaten, he's hanging on that cross in our place. He was condemned by God so that we would be free. He was punished by God so that we would be healed. That's who you're supposed to look to. Because there's a lot of difficult people, frankly, whom you just don't want to love. You say, how did you know that? Because there's a lot of people I don't want to love, okay? All right, I'll just be honest with you. My, my flesh, my sin nature rises up within me, and I, and I want to go into indifferent mode. And sadly, even to the hatred mode. I don't want to, there's just a lot of people I don't want to love. Because that's messy. That's difficult. It might cost me money. It might cost me time. And so I need to look to Jesus. So, my non-Christian friend, let me ask you this. Do you see why you will not be able to stand before God? Do you understand how you can't offer God of anything that's going to impress Him? There is nothing that's going to prove your worthiness of heaven. Your love for others is insignificant, if noticeable at all. The prophet Isaiah said, All our righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. God's not impressed with our righteousness. Do you realize there's enough damnable sin in our best deeds to repulse God, let alone our worst deeds, actions, and thoughts? So, my friend, here's the good news is that God is a rescuing God. That is good news. He is a rescuing God. That's why Jesus is called our Savior. And I love what Romans 5.8 says. It's, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what we are. We're sinners. We need Christ to die for sinners. And so, my non-Christian friend, you need a Savior. We need someone to rescue us from the wrath of God against sin. That's what propitiation is. We saw it right there in the text. You see, the only Savior provided is Jesus You can't save yourself. There is nothing you can do. Your good works will never save you. But Jesus is enough. And so I plead with you to turn to the Son of God in repentance from your sin. Place your faith in Jesus Christ alone so that you can be saved. So God revealed His love in His Son. But number two, God reveals His love through people. See, Jesus isn't here, is He? Not physically here anyway. He did send the Holy Spirit, but God also works through people. And so this revelation of God's love applies 
also to the Christian on the basis of our ongoing Christian life. The same sacrifice of our Savior informs us. It shapes how we live together in love with one another. Look at chapter 4, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Do you see that, my friends? It, it shapes us. God's love shapes, informs how you and I are to love one another. So love for one another is what makes our love for God visible, by the way. How, how is an unsaved person supposed to know God's love? Hopefully by looking at you. How can our love for an unseen God be made visible? Look at chapter 4, verse 12. Chapter 4, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. My friend, you you can be a billboard. And you don't even have to pay for it. (laughs) Because Jesus already did. You can become a billboard for God's love. Showing the world who God is, what He's like. How you doing? <laughs> so here, we think of it this way. The church turns into a place where the love of God is completed in this world. You say, well, oh, that all sounds real good, but why should I love? Why should I love? Because this is going to be costly. It costs Jesus' his life. It may not cost you your life, but it is going to be a sacrifice. So why should Christians love? Well, John, John heads you off at the pass here and tells you several reasons why you should love. Let's talk about some reasons. Number one, God is the essence of love. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So love is something that's inherent in all God is. It's who He is. It's not the only thing He is, but it's inherent in what He does and who He is. And so, by the way, that even in His judgment, God is still love. So His judgment and His love are somehow harmoniously intertwined together. God is the essence of love. Number two, why should Christians love? Because we need to follow God's example in sending His Son for us. That's verse 9. You need to follow this great example because it says the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. So the judgment of Sin on the cross was a supreme example of God's love for us. The Father poured out His wrath on Jesus so that we don't have to receive it because Jesus already received it for you in your place. Number three, why should Christians love? Because love is the heart of Christian witness. Look at verse 12. It's the heart of Christian witness. We already said this. No one has ever seen God If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. So nobody can see God loving since God is invisible, the Bible says. God is a spirit and Jesus is no longer in this world manifesting God's love. So the only demonstration of God's love, at least in this time period, in this age, is what? The church. 
We, the church, are to be demonstrating God's love. Number four, why should Christians love? Because love is the Christian's assurance. Now, I'll elaborate on that one in just a moment. Love is the Christian's assurance. Why is that? Because love finds its source here in the triune God. Did you notice the Trinity is mentioned, not the word Trinity, but all three persons of the Godhead are mentioned here. So love finds its source in the triune God. It's interesting, from eternity past, the triune God, the Trinity, the Godhead, enjoyed perfect harmony and fellowship with one another. So those who say that God created this world and God created you because he was lonely and needed fellowship, whoa, that's, that's a load of rubbish. God enjoyed perfect harmony and fellowship. They are perfect. God doesn't need us. And so as those who abide in God, believers then are able to reflect his love. And yet that's only possible because of God abides in them. That's what it says. And because of the Spirit. You notice the Spirit's mentioned there? The Spirit abides in our hearts. Number five, the last reason why Christians should love is because love's the Christian's confidence in judgment. Everybody's going to be judged one day. The Bible says everyone. And, and this passage here talks about this judgment. Look at verse 17. By this is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. So why can believers have this kind of a confidence? Verse 17 answers the question. The, the statement here means that the Father is going to treat Christians the same way he treats his son, Jesus Christ. Well, that's a blessing. Because you don't want what you deserve. You don't want what's fair. You don't. You want to be treated like Jesus. What God does is he clothes a believer in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and then he grants you that love that he has for his son. And he treats you as one of his children. Well, let me elaborate on the fourth one there, because we see in this passage that when we love as Jesus commanded, we are assured of our salvation. This is one of the assurances of salvation, one of the ways you can know that you're actually on your way to heaven. and You can, you can know this for sure. One of the cool things about this book in 1 John is John wants you to know. The Holy Spirit wants you to know this. It is possible for you to know that you're on your way to heaven with total assurance. Because the entire book of 1 John was written to teach Christians how they can know this for certain. I'll put this on the screen here for you. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you see that? Verse 13. It is possible to know. You can go through life with total assurance that the moment you die, you're absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. It's interesting in chapters 3 and 4, there, there's nine times where you find John writing the words, this is how we know. Nine times. Now why did the Bible repeat that phrase? Because God wants you to know something. That's why. John's providing three tests for knowing whether a person is truly a Christian. You want to know if you're a child of God or a child of the devil? Read 1 John. It, it's pretty clear. 
All right? There's three tests in particular that John gives us. Three tests. You, you'll know if you are actually a Christian or not. The first test that John gives is the ethical test of love. We've been talking about that one. The ethical test of love. The Bible says that sometimes the Christian's heart it, it condemns us. It accuses us. Sometimes Satan himself accuses us. He is known as the accuser of the brethren. However, love for other Christians is going to silence that condemning whisper in our heart. And that's what chapter 3, verse 19 is talking about. Look at verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For when our, our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. He knows whether or not you're a Christian. He knows what's really going on in your heart because He can see into your heart. So we know we belong to the truth if we love the brethren. By the way, it's loving in truth as well as actions. If you look at chapter 4, verse 16, pretty clear. Chapter 4, verse 16, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. So, my friend, do you fear God's judgment? Do you fear God's judgment? Well, let me ask, we'll just think about this, because perhaps that kind of a fear is indicating something. Think of it kind of like the, the warning on the dashboard of your car. When, that, when a warning light goes on the dashboard of your car, do you just ignore it? Or do you pay attention to that? I hope you pay attention to it, because it does mean something most of the time. Well, think of fear as kind of like a warning light. Sometimes God gives us fear. It's indicating maybe that love for other people hasn't been perfected yet. Maybe there's something more that you need to give, more you need to do. Think of it that way. So that's the ethical test of love. John gives a second test. It's a, a behavior test, and it's obedience. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. That's obedience. And so because we obey God and because we please Him in our actions, you know what happens then? You actually gain confidence. You, you gain this assurance before God. By the way, there's a potential problem with this kind of a teaching, though. Because no one is perfectly obeying God. No, none of us are. Nobody completely pleases God in all of our thoughts and our actions. So how can this confidence be had? Well, look at verse 23. Because verse 23 tells us what it is to please God and obey Him. Look at verse 23. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. By the way, notice it's one command, but there's two sides to this coin. Every coin has two sides, right? One command, one side of the coin says, believe in Jesus, the other says, love one another. But it's one command. That's interesting. God expects us to do both. So when we believe on Jesus, then all of his righteous obedience is credited to our account. Because Jesus obeyed the law of God for us, which, of course, we could have never done, but Jesus did for you. But there's a third test. It's the spiritual test 
of assurance. The spiritual test of assurance. We may be sure of our standing with Jesus because we have a guarantee. We have a guarantor, if you will. We have what the Bible calls the Holy Spirit. And when you have the Holy Spirit, then you can know this. The Spirit of God assures us. Let me give you two verses to look at. Chapter 3, verse 24. Chapter 3, verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know he abides in us. How do, how do you know? Look at the last part. By the Spirit whom he has given us. All right, you, you say, does the Bible say anything else? Yes. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. My friends, if you do not understand the abiding communion of the Holy Spirit in your life, then you're not a believer. You, you, don't, you don't pass this test. Because this is something you can be assured of. You can know that you are a child of God because of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. And when He's there, He assures us. He's the greatest of all assurances, in fact. There is nothing, there is, there isn't nothing more powerful than, than the third member of the Trinity residing within you. He operates on us to turn us from sin, to give us a new and a holy life, and that's possible through faith in His Son, God's Son, Jesus Christ. So here's God's invitation to His people. Here's God's invitation to His people. God's saying, hey, come dwell together in love. Dwell together in love. Love one another. Do it for God and do it for one another. Those are the two greatest commands, aren't they? Love God and love other people. And in the process, you fulfill the law. So if we love God, then what you're going to do is you're going to love one another. And if we love one another, then you're going to grow in your love for God. It's, it's, it's like a beautiful circle. By the way, both of the statements are true. And it's, it is true because what is the essence of God according to this passage? God is love. He's love. And so we can love we can love Him because He first loved us, and we can love other people because of what God does in us and through us. And I pray that His grace would evidence this glorious truth, and that we would be glorious, beautiful-looking billboards to this world of God's love. Let's pray.